Mm. It's good. It's good to um, begin the year praising the Lord, isn't it? It is. It is. I want to encourage you uh, with a couple of things as we begin a new year. Uh, we're beginning a new series today we're calling Mistaken Identity. It's really a, a study of the book of Colossians in the New Testament. I'm going to overview it today. But I want you, as we begin a new year, to really think about, especially this week, next Sunday, what are some things the Lord really is up to in your life? What are some things that you want to see the Lord do in your life? Or what are some things the Lord wants to do in your life that you may not be aware of yet in this coming year? That said, um, I want to jump into the Bible today, but before we get there, I want to encourage you to ask yourself a couple of questions, kind of along the lines of, of what is the Lord doing in my life? The first is this, how do you identify yourself? Now, our world these days is making a big deal about pronouns in that sense. That's not the sense in which I mean the question. How do you identify yourself? What is it about you that is uniquely you? How do you define who you are? If you were to say to yourself, like in my case, if I were to say, Brian, you know, what is really important to know about Brian? If you're going to really know Brian, what is it about Brian that, is, that makes him who he is? How do you define who you are? What, are? what are some of the most important things to understand about yourself? And who do you want to be in the coming year? Now, the answer to those questions is important, but I'm going to be straight with you. The real answer doesn't start with you. The real answer to those questions starts with Jesus long before it comes to you. But I'm going to get to that. That said, I have one other question before we jump into our Bibles. And if you have a Bible, you can open it with me to the book of Colossians in the New Testament. You know, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, uh, sort of in that order when you when you find them. If you don't have a Bible, we have uh, Bibles around in the back in various places. Uh, we would love to give you one of our Bibles. Feel free to pick up our Bible, write your name in it, consider it yours. So one other question I want you to ask, and it, it, this seems out of left field, but we're going to connect the dots on these today. Are there any parts of your life that are untouchable to God or to other people? Are there any parts of your life that are untouchable, so important to who you are that they're, in your mind, non-negotiables? Now, it just happens to be that in most families, if you have something like this in your life, everybody around you knows about it, but nobody ever talks about it because it's untouchable. Everybody around you uh, can probably identify it, but no one is allowed to go there and if I'm honest, a lot of times we build walls around this area of our life so that even it's untouchable to Jesus in our minds. This might be, just as a few examples, a way of thinking, right? You, it might be in your whole life you've thought, like, I'm a rebel. I root for the underdog. It's a core part of who I am. It might be an identity issue, some issue where you say, you know, I, I'm different than everybody else in this way. But that's the way it's always going to be. It might be a problem in your life or a difficulty in your life, something like, I'm an addict. It might be something in your life that's a hurt, where someone has, 
or many people have hurt and hurt and hurt you over the years, and the hurt is so deep that you can't go there, much less allow God or other people to go there. What I can tell you is that if you have some walled-off place in your soul that's untouchable by you or by God or by other people, that peace is a key indicator of who you think you are. Again, we're beginning a series, study of the book of Colossians. We're calling it Mistaken Identity. And what we're going to see along the way is that when I misunderstand Jesus, I misunderstand who I am. And I'll come back to that in a few minutes. But as we look at our Bibles this morning, I want you to just read with me how the letter begins. And then I'm going to tell you a bit about the, sort of the who, what, when, and where of the book of Colossians in the New Testament. Chapter 1, verse 1 begins with a signature, basically. They began their letters in ancient times with who was writing it up front. We end our letters that way today, right? We get to the end, we say sincerely or thank you or thanks again or whatever, you know, sort of that tagline, and then, we, and then I sign my name. They did the opposite in ancient times. So he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So this is Paul who wrote a bunch of other letters that are here in the New Testament. All of the letters surrounding Colossians were written by Paul. Many others were as well. Paul, an apostle by Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people and Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. So I'll tell you just a couple other little hints. This was written by Paul, but he's never been to this church. He's probably been through the town of Colossae before, but this church was probably started uh, after his time. We know from the book of Acts that Paul spent significant time at one point in his journey in, the, in, in, in Ephesus. And Ephesus is about 100 miles away from Colossae. And I'll show you a map in a minute. And probably while Paul was there, other believers or non-believers even came and found faith in Jesus Christ and then went back to their hometowns. And it's very likely that a man named Epaphras, who he calls our dear servant or our dear fellow servant, was one of those people who discovered Christ in Ephesus when Paul was ministering there, took it back to Colossae and began a church either in his home or someone else's home. I'll show you the reference on that, chapter 1, verse 7. He's talking about the gospel, and he says, you learned it, the gospel, from Epaphras, or as I heard it said this week, Epaphras. And, you know, I'm just going to tell you up front, I never exactly know. When you're talking about ancient names and uh, who am I to say how you pronounce a person's name, right? You learned it from Epaphras. That's how I've always said it. But I've got a little Southern in me, you know. Epaphras. <laughs> right? And that's how Southerner would say it, right? Our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. So here's what's interesting. Paul is in prison when he writes this letter, and that becomes apparent later in the letter. Just trust me on that. Paul's in prison. Epaphras has come to where Paul is. We tend to think that Paul was likely in Rome in prison, but he's got a little bit of freedom for people to come and go. And Paul writes a bunch of letters in that moment. And one of them he writes to Colossae. And actually, another one he writes to Ephesus, where I just said Paul had done that extensive ministry. And you can tell that these two letters are written together because when you read them, they're similar when you put them chapter by chapter, side by side. 
that, that they have a structure to them that is mostly the same. So Paul's in prison, Epaphras comes, gives him an update on the church in Colossae. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea, which is another city nearby, and for all who have not met me personally. This is how we know Paul's not been to this church before. Now that's just a little background, but I want you to understand the who and the what before we dive into the why and what the letter's really about. The letter was truly written to this group of believers in Colossae, who were, who were confronted with a lot of false teachings. And there's false teachings caused them to tend to compromise either the gospel or their belief about Jesus Christ. And so they were blending a lot of things together. And I'll come back to that, but I want you to understand where Colossae is. If you've ever seen maps of this part of the world, um, it would look something like this. The first maps of the region. This is the Mediterranean Sea right in the middle there. You can identify Italy uh, where Rome is, right? The big book. I have my high tech uh, pointer here. You know, everybody should have every, t this one is well branded. It says harvest, right? It's been so used over the years that it's losing its paint, right? I mean, who needs a laser pointer when you have a high tech solution like this, right? Right, so uh, this is a little blurry on the screen. Don't, don't if your eyes can't read it. I, I want you to see the larger region more than anything else. Right, so this is the Mediterranean Sea. Over in this area, we have where Israel is today. This is modern day Turkey. This is modern day Greece. This is modern day Italy. Does this kind of make sense in terms of what the world looks like still today? All right, so if we zoom in on Turkey and this southwest region, Craig, can you go back just for a second? No, you're, you're good. This southwest region of Turkey, you're going to see all these little islands here start to pop out. But what you're going to see, now we can go to that next slide, is that you have, this is southwest Turkey, modern day Turkey. Over here is Ephesus. All right. Here's Hierapolis. Here's Laodicea. Here's Colossae. So in that same region are churches, uh, Smyrna, Pergamum, um, in fact, all of the letters that show up in Revelation 2, Revelation 3, when those letters were sent to the churches of Asia Minor, Phrygia, that's this region. That's where this is. Um, and so from here, Ephesus, over here to Colossae, is about 100, 120 miles, just to give you some frame of reference for distance. So we're talking the distance, similar distance between us and Portland. And the, the most leading city of that day in this region was Ephesus itself. That's why Paul ended up there for so long, I believe. But you have this little triangle of cities uh, in the Lycus Valley, Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. They're separated in this little river valley uh, by a river that runs through. And it, do you want to see what that valley looks like? Yeah, yeah sure. It looks sort of like ours, except there's a, there, there, snow on the mountain is a little more visible uh, than ours is, depending on uh, your view of the sisters from here. But it, it looks a lot like our valley looks today. Now, Colossae is a little town, uh, much smaller than Eugene or Springfield, and it had a past where it had been a more significant city, but trade routes had kind of moved here and there, and Hierapolis became a little more important. Laodicea became a little more important. So you've got this little town where, where there's not as many jobs as there used to be, but the church is born in this little town, and the gospel is moving in people's lives. And, and here's what's going on, just so you understand 
uh, sort of what's happening here. This church has, and every new church struggles with this, has a blend of people. I'm going to put my pointer down because I don't think I need it anymore. I, I might hurt the screen if I, uh, if I try to do that. Aren't you thankful we have high-tech pointers around here? I just want you to know that when you give to Harvest Community Church, we so steward your resources that we use old-school Somebody's going to, probably three people are going to show up with a laser pointer next Sunday. Brian, here you go. So here's what's going on. They begin the church, and in the city of Colossae, there are, are religiously speaking, or spiritually speaking, there, there are really like three groups of people. Um, if you think about it, there are non-religious people who just have no religion at all. There are Jewish folks. In fact, we know that uh, around this time or a little bit later, there were as many as, many as 11,000 11, Jewish folks that live uh, in, in this area. And then there are people who, who embrace the religion of their country, the religion that is popular of the time. And it's a sort of animistic, um, mystic polytheistic, really a, a belief in a lot of gods. I mean, very similar to what you would see in the Greek world, very similar to what you see in the Roman Empire, where, where people believe in a plethora of gods that all battle each other, much like human beings do on earth, and you worship the god that sort of represents your region. And what was happening in the church as people came to Christ is they were trying to take these strands of belief, where they believed this about this sort of mythic, polytheistic God and blend it with what they were being taught about Jesus Christ. And they would take this little bit of what they'd heard from Judaism, from, from Jewish faith, from the Old Testament, or from, to put it in Jesus' terms, some of the Phariseeism of the New Testament, and they'd take a practice of Judaism of some kind, and they'd try to blend that in together. And they literally were just, you know, they'd just get out the mixer and they'd take these beliefs that they had and they'd mix them all together. But the problem with that is it was beginning to change the gospel. It was beginning to change what spiritual maturity would look like. And it certainly was changing what people believed about Jesus Christ. And so when Epaphras comes to Paul and says, hey, I want you to give you the update on the church of Colossae. He says, here's some good stuff that's going on. And here's something bad that's going on. Paul says, man, I got to write and make sure they get Jesus right. Now, if you think this is something that only happens in the ancient world, think again. Because how often in American life are we trying to blend the philosophies of our day with the spiritual beliefs that come from the Bible? And when we begin to blend these things together, right? I mean, like, like there are things you can blend in that really have no impact. I'm going to be honest. Like, I'm wearing black socks today. But would it matter if I had worn white socks today? No, it probably would have been uh, slightly out of place and would have looked funny. And, but whether I wear black socks or white socks is really irrelevant, unless I'm a White Sox fan, I suppose. But if I were to take, uh, let's say, like certain political beliefs, and by that I'm not identifying one side or the other. I, frankly, I'm identifying almost any sides of political belief. And I were to blend that with a uh, sense that, uh, like a sporting sense that, that, you know what, my team, my group, my, my people are really better than other people. And then I were to blend that together with 
Um, some other very American ways of thinking, like, you know, we say in America often, like, we're people who pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. So if we were to say, spiritually speaking, you know, if we're going to make it to heaven, we've got to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and we've got to put in the work and the effort and the energy. Well, that makes grace no longer grace. They did that. We did that. We all have the problem. The problem in Colossae, and the problem with most of us, is that we try and they, we try to blend Christianity with other beliefs that we do not want to give up. We blend them together, much like we get the mixer out at home, and we throw the ingredients in, and we just start to mix them together. And you know, if you put the right ingredients in a cookie recipe. Your cookie recipe turns out really good, doesn't it? I mean, so good that many of you, I just happen to roughly know this, many of you like to eat the cookie dough before you eat the cookies. Exactly, right? And so you've always got to have a little extra in the cookie dough or you're going to have, not have enough cookies. And so, But what happens if you change the recipe? You get a different cookie. That's absolutely it. What happens... If you blend something into the recipe that doesn't really go with cookies, like let's say I were to take some hot sauce and really blend that into the cookies, a couple of you might think that's a great idea, but most of us would go, those two things don't go together. If I were to take 10 eggs instead of one egg and blend it into the cookie, it's probably not going to turn out the same, wouldn't you say? Right? Too much flour, too little flour, right? But let's go a little further. Let's say, I, let's say they're chocolate chip cookies, and I were to find other brown things that I can find in nature, like, like little droplets from a rabbit, or a, like, like if I blend those into the cookies, like doesn't this change the cookie at some point? If I'm like, hey, this is a fresh chocolate chipped rabbit dropping cookie, you're not getting very excited about this cookie, are you? Even if it had some good ingredients blended into are you sure? A little rat poison thrown in there, you're not... You can't take that out. Yeah, I mean, it, there are certain things when you blend in, it changes everything. And that's what was going on in Colossae. They were trying to blend Christianity with other deeply held beliefs that changed who Jesus was, what Christianity is, what spiritual maturity looked like. I want to come back again and ask you, this is kind of like that untouchable question. I want to go the other direction with that. If, they have, if you have untouchable things in your life, there are walls around it. Even Jesus can't touch that, can't go there. Is there anything in your life that really does touch everything else? Is there anything in your life that really impacts everything else in your life? Because that also is crucial to your identity. If there's something in your life that is untouchable, that's crucial to your identity, how you see yourself, how you define yourself. But if there's something in your life that's catalytic, that, that when, the, when the mix is blended, it begins to change everything else, it creates a chemical reaction of sorts so that everything else is somehow different, whatever that is, is also key to your identity. And I'm going to suggest to you today that only Jesus deserves to be that catalyst, that thing that changes everything else in your life and touches everything else in your life. And you would expect me to say that I'm a preacher, right? I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I've been doing this for, I don't know, 30 or so years. 
And so you would expect me to say that Jesus should be that person in your life. But do you know we let a lot of other things into that place in our life that, that becomes a catalytic that changes everything else about us? Like sometimes for some of us, that's money and how we feel about money. And that feeling about money changes everything else in our life. For some of us, it's, uh, it's rooted in our pride and insecurity. It's, we're obsessed with what other people think. And that begins to change everything about us. Or we're obsessed with always having to win. Which, by the way, is not that different than having to always care about what everybody else thinks about us. Because, again, both of those are rooted in sort of an inferiority or, or, or a sense of pride that we really struggle with. It, it even can be good things in our life. Sometimes we take the blessings of God, like, like a home or a family or a, a spouse or kids, and we make them the untouchable thing in our life that changes everything else, but nobody's willing or allowed to change that. In essence, what I'm suggesting is that some things become idols in our lives. And I want you to think a little deeply about what you're trying to blend into your belief system. And I want you asking, is Jesus in the appropriate place? Is it Jesus that changes everything else? Or is Jesus maybe just one of the ingredients in the equation and he doesn't do much? It, Jesus alone deserves to be the center of my beliefs, and Jesus alone deserves to be the catalyst that changes everything else in my life. I'm going to say it one more way, and, and this is the one thing the message is about. If you're taking notes, you can, you can write this in under the one thing. That when I better understand who Jesus is, I understand better who I am, and I understand better what life is all about. When I better understand who Jesus is, I understand better who I am. Because Jesus defines my value. Jesus defines who I am. By the way, this applies to other people as well. When Jesus is the center of my life, I better understand who other people are. People who are different than me, people who look different than me, people who think different than me. When I better understand who Jesus is, I understand better who I am, and I understand better what life is all about. That's really what this entire series in the book of Colossians is going to be about. We're going to spend the next three months or so making our way verse by verse through this book, this letter to the people in Colossae. And I want you to see that we're not different that different than they are, that we need to rightly understand Jesus. Because when I misunderstand Jesus, I misunderstand everything else about who I am. And when I blend in sort of the teachings of the world and let it all blend together, it begins to empty Christianity of its meaning, but also of its power. Those can be cultural influences or political influences. They can be family background influences, educational influences, philosophical influences. These are the things that identity is made of when you study that sort of field. Why you are who you are. It's an influence of your way of thinking, your parents' way of thinking, your family of origin, your education's way of thinking, your politics' way of thinking, your friend or your social circle's way of thinking. Do you know how powerful it is to have one of these things with social media and instantly know what our friends are thinking about any event that happens in the world? Like, it becomes life-shaping. When you begin, some event, some, some, some dumb thing happens in Washington. 
By this, I mean D.C., not, not our friends to the north. <laughs> and some dumb thing happens in Washington, and, and we interpret it by the media and social media we see. See how, see how easily it influ- our thinking is influenced by, by what we consume. Uh, the, <laughs> the primary media's way of thinking, our spiritual way of thinking, all of these influences combine together, and, and I'm going to be straight, only Jesus deserves to be the center of all of that, the catalyst that changes everything else. Only Jesus deserves that. When I better understand who Jesus is, I understand better who I am, and I understand better what life is all about. Colossians addresses, in a lot of senses, several big questions. Who is the real Jesus? What is real Christianity? And what does real spiritual maturity look like? So I want to take the time we have left, and I want to walk through chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, Colossians, give you a quick overview, and I want to show you four arguments that solve this blending problem that we have. By the way, I mean, there's a big fancy word for this. It's called syncretism. Right? If you, if you need, for, for you to feel like you've really learned something today, if you need the big word, then you say that with me, syncretism. Right? That's, that's, that's the, the philosophical word for blending things. But in the kitchen, I just call it, you know, mixing. Right? It's, 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 it's real simple. When we begin, syncretism is when we begin to blend things that really aren't meant to be blended. Four arguments that solve that from Paul here in the book of Colossians. I'm going to give you, just right out of the gate, the first one. The first one is that Jesus alone is Lord, and Jesus alone deserves to be the center of my life. I want to read for you, just very quickly, (laughs) this lofty, poetic, some would say this was a song from ancient times, from the early, early, early church, that Christians used to teach who Jesus was. And, it, and we're not sure who exactly wrote this, but there's a lot of belief that this was either a, a poem or a song from ancient times. And Paul inserts it here in the letter. I just want to read it to you. It's right in the middle of Colossians 1. It starts here, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. It says, the Son, we're talking about Jesus here, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And he goes on to talk more about salvation. And I just want you to see, like this is one of the loftiest, biggest statements in the entire Bible about who Jesus is. And largely, he's saying, and I will repeat this when we get a few weeks down the road, but he's saying, your view of Jesus is too small. When you're blending some polytheistic, like there's a lot of gods, and there's a whole lot of them, and Jesus is just one among many, and they're battling against each other, and like, you know, it's Jesus versus the Greek god of this, or the Roman god of that, you're reducing Jesus, you're shrinking Jesus. And when you have a shrinked Jesus, 
that's not very life-changing. And so he is magnifying who Jesus is, and he is saying that Jesus alone is Lord, and Jesus alone deserves to be the center of my life. And as you think about things you wall in in your life and say that's untouchable, I would say only Jesus deserves to be the most important thing in your life. When you think about other things in your life that might be idols, that, that, that they're sort of catalytic, you blend into your life and it changes everything else, only Jesus deserves to be catalytic in your life. From there, Paul argues, if Jesus alone is Lord and Jesus alone deserves to be the center of my life, then Paul's going to argue in chapter 2 that Jesus' way of grace offers real salvation and offers true salvation. That his way of grace is the only thing that really accomplishes that. Again, I'm only going to read part of it for you, but chapter 2, verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather on Christ. It's this verse alone, some of the rest of chapter 2. But it's this verse alone that tells me that they were blending these empty philosophies of the day. He says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity of God dwells or lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness, and he is the head over every power and authority, and in him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. And your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ, and he forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them by the cross. Whatever that means... It's saying that if we take some hollow, empty philosophies of this world and we just blend them into our belief system, thinking that they're not going to change our belief about Christ, he's saying, no, 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 they will. And the thing you must, 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 must understand is that the salvation offered in Christ is the real deal. It's the only real deal. And Jesus' way of grace is the true way that must be embraced. Does this make sense? So if Jesus is Lord and Jesus alone is Lord and deserves to be the center of my life, and if his way of grace is the only true way of salvation, then he's going to argue in chapter 3 that Jesus' way of love is the true evidence of maturity. Some of what he argues against in chapter 2 is some of their ways of saying, I'm more mature than you. And do you know Christians still do that today? They kind of play the game where it's like, you know, my way, my gifts are better than yours, or my way of worship is better than yours, or my church is better than yours, or, you know, Christians still do that same sort of silly game today, don't we? Right? That, that, that our way of maturity is better than your way of maturity. Right, I know more about the Bible than you do, and because I know more about the Bible than you do, I must be more mature. Well, that's a joke, quite frankly, because I've known many people who know a lot about the Bible, but they're living like this much of it. Sometimes it's not our beliefs about the Bible. Sometimes it's our beliefs about Jesus. Sometimes, it, sometimes it's the practices that we do 
they were, in that sense, in this old uh, town, small town, they were blending some things from Judaism into the equation. And they were blending in some um, practices of what you could and couldn't do with your body specifically. And they were saying, people who are really mature are this way, and people who are not really mature are this way. And those of us who are really mature are more mature than you because, because we do things our way. And so in chapter 3, Paul writes to say, no, 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 the way of love, the way of Jesus in love is the indicator of spiritual maturity. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Now, just to save some time, in this next little section, he's going to tell us to take off some of the ways of thinking of the world, to take off immorality and impurity and lust and evil desires and greed and a bunch of other things. He's going to say, take these things off and look at your new self that's, that's identified with who Christ is. And, and I want you to just, I'm going to pick it up in verse 11. He says, here, there is no Gentile or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian or Scythian, no slave nor free, but Christ is all and Christ is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. So you're a people who are holy and dearly loved. Because of that, close yourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, with patience. Bear with each other. Forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And then he goes on to say, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell richly in you. I'm summarizing here a bit. Verse 17, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He's saying that the empty things that we blended into the equation, those are not signs of spiritual maturity, that Christ-like love is the evidence of spiritual maturity. And I'm certainly reminded when I think of this that, that, that the opposite of love is not necessarily hate. And that can be an opposite. We think of that as the polar extreme. But the opposite of love really, if you think deeply about it, is apathy. It's not caring at all. And that matters because the argument that he's going to make the rest of chapter 3 and the rest of chapter 4, we could define love as laying down our lives for one another. And I've done that in other sermons, so, so if you need more on that, just tell me and I'll, I'll point you some other directions. But laying down our lives for one another. And he's going to pick up later in chapter 3 and say, okay, so this is how it works in a family. Wives, this is how you lay down your life for your husband. Husbands, here's how you lay down your life for your wife. Then he's going to say, kids, here's how you lay down your life in love for your family. And the parents, here's how you lay down your life in love for your kids. And then he's going to speak to slaves because they had slaves in that day. And I'm not affirming slavery by doing that. I'm just speaking to the world in which they lived. They lived in a world where slavery was normal and was a normal part of, of uh, it's hard to say this, but work life in a sense. It was part of the social fabric that, that how people made a living was to be owned by other people. And Paul says, slaves, here's what it looks like to lay down your life 
and love. And then he says, masters, here's what it looks like to lay down your life in love and let the love of Christ drive who you are. And he says it strong enough. Here's what he doesn't say, and I'm going I'm to be honest about this because I've got no choice but to be honest about it. He doesn't say, masters, let your slaves go. And that's what we want to see. But here's what he does say. Between this and, when we get to chapter four, we see the mention of a a slave named Onesimus and and an owner of a slave named Philemon who were both a part of this church. And Onesimus had run away from his master, from Philemon, who, who was a Christian in Colossae. And somewhere on the run, Onesimus became Uh, united with Paul, and he became a believer in Jesus. And Paul writes another letter, which shows up just a few pages over in your New Testament, to Philemon, and it's a very personal letter. it's, It's like this far over in your Bible. He writes to Philemon, and he says, you, that Onesimus ran away from you, and I'm asking you to have him back as a brother, and he calls out Philemon and challenges him. Sorry. To love his brother in the Lord. And this becomes not only life altering, but societally altering. So, number four, Paul argues through chapter three and chapter four that Jesus' church is the best hope for family change the best hope for social change, the best hope for world change. If if your family needs real change, Jesus at the center is the best hope of that. If our world needs change, and Lord knows it does. Is there anybody here who would say our world is really good as it is? Like, it, it's, it, it's perfect to use the language we were talking about at Christmas. Well, anybody would say, our world is perfect. I mean, my world's not perfect because last week I lost my fantasy football game. <laughs> I am not in the championship this week. There's a lot that is wrong in this world. Obviously, I'm minimizing. There's a lot of wrong things in this world. I turn on any news station and I find that immediately. I open my social media on Instagram, on, on Facebook, on any of those things, and I instantly see things that are wrong with this world. And if this world's going to really change, it's this idea that roots itself in Jesus is Lord, and Jesus alone is Lord and deserves to be the center. And, and that, therefore, his way of grace is the way forward. And when his way of grace is implemented, it shows up in practical love where we lay down our lives for one another. And that's such a life-altering principle that it literally has changed the world over and over and over. Do you know why we believe slavery is wrong today? And by the way, there's still places in the world where slavery still exists. They're just in hidden pockets here and there. You could, you, you could argue that some of the sex trade and, and some other things that go around are modern-day slavery. But there's a, there's, a, there's a common belief in our part of the world, at least, that slavery is wrong. Do you know why we have that belief in the world? It goes back to the abolition movement of the 1800s, the abolitionists. Do you know who the abolitionists were? 
They were Christians who were arguing that it should not be this way. In fact, it shows up in a Christmas song that we sang Christmas Eve. You know the song, O Holy Night? Right? Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. You know, I'm not going to sing it because that, that, you know, that high. Fall. You know. <clears throat> right? You know what I'm talking about. Oh, holy night. You know that song, don't you? Third verse of that song says, Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love. His gospel is peace. Chain shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression should cease. That was written in the 1840s or 50s. You know what else was going on in the world, in America, in the mid-1800s? Yeah, right. It was abolitionists in Western Europe, abolitionists in the United States who fought to say, no, no, no. I think they're using the same argument that Paul makes between Philemon and Onesimus to say love is the dynamic that will change things. You can run down the list of ways society has been bettered over the years. Education. Christians were involved in starting schools for the masses along the way so that everybody was involved with learning to lead, uh, read and write. Hospitals. Fourth century it was Christians who leaned in and said, the people of the world need care, that there's something about elevating souls. Women and children, the ability for women and children to be seen equally with men in this world is an argument that comes from the spark of God, the, the idea that the creation of God is present in every human being and that he made them. Do you know that in this day in Colossae back then, not just in Colossae, but all over the Roman world, it, it, was not, it was legal to expose your children to the elements in nature and let the elements, if you, if you had a baby, that you infanticide was not legal, but leaving your baby out in the cold was. And Christians came along and said, hmm, Widows were not allowed to stay widowed for more than two years by law in that day because widows were seen as discardable. And Christians in the New Testament leaned in and said, we got them, we'll take care of them. This way of love of Jesus has been changing the world for thousands of years. And if you look at our world today and you get a little depressed and you say, gosh, we need something. Yeah, we do. We do. His name is Jesus. And his way of love is the best hope for family and social change. And here I say the church is because we are the place where his way of grace and love is practiced. Not just us, but every church, his collective church around the world. Does this make sense? So here at Harvest, we tend to end our services with two prayers. And one of those prayers is a prayer of salvation. And one of those prayers is a prayer of application. And as we think about application today, I want you to think about the walls of your life and where you've said, you know, Jesus, I'm not going to allow you to touch this. You know, sort of MC Hammer version, like, don't touch this. I'm going to ask you to think about praying with me. 
that Jesus would tear down those things that need to be torn down. That we would stop blending those things that, re- that shouldn't be blended. But in terms of salvation today, if you realize today that you're utterly broken and that you need Jesus to forgive your sin, that his way of grace, you may not fully understand, but his way of grace is better than any hope you've ever tried to pursue in this world, I would challenge you. Like, there's no better moment than this one right here, right now, to say, Jesus, I need what you have. You can pray it with me online or right here in the room, just like this. Say, Dear Jesus, I know I'm broken. I know I fall short. And I know I'm a sinner. Jesus, I ask you to take over my life and forgive my sin and remove the things that need to be removed and add your love and grace and thankfulness, mercy and peace. All that you offer, add that to my life and change me. And then help me to be a part of your change in this world. Be God over my life, Jesus. I pray in your name. Amen. If that's you and you prayed that with me, I'd love to know it. You can tell me on a communication card. You can find me after the service. You can email me, even online. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at Harvest Church Eugene. We love, love, love to celebrate when people become believers in Jesus. We celebrate through baptism, which, by the way, we will celebrate in just weeks from now. We would love to see you be baptized because you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. If today you'd say, you know what, there's some things in my life that I've kind of kept Jesus out of, and I need to apply this to my life. I need to stop blending some stuff that shouldn't be blended. Maybe you'd pray this prayer of application with me. I don't always challenge us to pray this out loud, but would you pray this one out loud with me if this is meaningful to you? Dear Jesus, thank you that you are truly Lord. Break down the untouchable walls in my life and change me from the inside out. Fill me with your love. Make your love my way of life and use me and all of my friends here at Harvest to love this community, to love this neighborhood, to love this city, and to love this world in your name. Jesus, bring the change we need.